Hey everybody, welcome back to the Barefoot Pause podcast where we teach them to want it. Now, uh, we're going to be talking about some socialization things today, so it's going to take a fairly social theme. Um, in 2021, we want to come away from this whole idea of isolation as a social means. We want to be socially inclusive with our dogs. At the end of the day, that's why we bought one. So, we're going to be talking about daycares and we're going to be talking about socialization. Now, if any of this speaks to you, you want some more information or you just want to get in touch, you can contact me through barefootpaws.com.au or you can call, uh, get in contact with me directly at barefootpaws at mail.com. All right, let's get into it. Let's have a look at what exactly is socialization and what it is not. There's a, a fairly common misnomer that my dog must love everyone and everything. And if they don't, then there's something wrong with that. Um, and that gets so many drugs into trouble. It causes a huge amount of frustration for um, us as dog owners. So let's define what it is. Socialization is how our dogs deal with living beings. Okay, so socialization is simply how do I interact with that person, that being, dogs, cats, birds, snakes, crickets, cockroaches, uh, whatever that may be, other pets, other dogs, uh, kids, babies, uh, the whole gamut of living organisms out there, how do I deal with them? That's what socialization is. So just from that little list that I kind of just blurred through then, we can kind of see that some things are worth investigating and, and establishing a relationship with, and others are best kept at bay. I don't necessarily want my dog to be going near a king brown snake and checking it out and, hey, do you want to play? Neither do I want my dog pulling me over to every person around. Hey, can you say hi to me? Have you got a cookie? Can I have a pat from you? It creates a bit of an issue. So we have this thing called... Um, socialization so that we can put a name to how my dog is able to interact and build relationships with other living beings okay my dog does not need to love everything instead what we are required to have is that my dog understands how to deal with with living beings that are, are most important for my lifestyle if I'm living in the city then chances are my dog doesn't really need to learn how to be around cows, doesn't need to learn how to be around other sort of, I don't know, farmyard animals or, um, or things of that nature. Right? What I want to do is I want to specialize in my particular lifestyle, which is unique to me. Now, if my dog is afraid of something, they don't need to fall in love with it at the end of the day. What they are required to, which is far more healthy, is to be neutral to that thing. So let's put it then into a real world context. If my dog is afraid of men with beards wearing sunglasses and hats, then I am called upon to teach my dog to be neutral to that thing, that person that particular type of person. They don't need to pull me over there looking for treats and balls and good times. What they need to do is be able to live their life without being scared out of their wits because there's a man with a facial hair wearing sunnies and a hat. Um, 
So what I'm required to do is teach my dog to be able to deal with that threat so that in such a case, as we're walking down the street or we're going to grab a coffee or we're hanging out at the beach or we're at a barbecue, whatever, and old mate comes around and he's wearing a hat, it doesn't freak my dog out. My dog might feel like, oh, that's a bit of a creepy look, but then they're going to be more neutral to it. They're going to react with um, indifference as opposed to that feeling of, I got to get out of here now. I can't get away. So now I'm going to have to push that problem away. And then I have an aggressive episode or I have a reactive dog or whatever that case is. As soon as I make that thing that they're afraid of neutral to them, then things become far more hunky-dory. Things are far more livable for my dog. So neutrality to the things that are attractive to my dog, as well as uh, fear listening to my dog, is a life-saving skill to have. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, now, habituation is the same thing, but with respect to inanimate objects. Habituation basically means get used to the things that don't move and don't have a life. Furniture is an inanimate object. Rocks, fire hydrants, telegraph poles, um, bags, like old shopping bags blowing in the wind, um, flags that are hanging off posts, signs that rattle, things of that nature. Right? So again, with habituation, the idea is that our dogs get used to those things that happen in our lifestyle and they don't care about them anymore. Right? So getting our dogs away from that panic stricken, oh my goodness, I've got to try and sort this thing out somehow. I've got to get away. I can't get away. I'm going to have to fight my way out of a corner. Getting them out of that feeling and more in line with the ability to cope with their fears, to cope with their stresses, and to be able to lead a normal life, that's where it's at. Fear is a lifesaver. If we try and reprogram the uh, our dog's response to fear to be something, oh, it's positive, it's all rainbows, it's all cool stuff, then I'm teaching my dog to essentially put their life at risk. And for a pet dog, that's, that's never cool. So... Uh, again, let's put that into practical terms. I walk up to uh, the pedestrian crossing, I push the, the button and I'm waiting. Next thing you know, a truck comes flying past, my dog peeks out, they're at the end of the lead because they're either chasing the truck away or they're trying to get away from the truck. Um, now, that's not a nice way to live life. As soon as your dog is coming near a road, they're thinking, oh, that truck could turn up any minute now and they're starting to get anxious. That's not cool. If, however, I can start to teach my dog that, hey, you'll, there's a truck coming. Let's make this worth your while. Oh, look, there's a truck here. Let's make it worth your while. Oh, look, the truck is leaving. Let's make it worth your while. As soon as I realize there are three phases to any event, the approach, the arrival, and the departure, if I'm able to capitalize on those three phases of, of any particular event, what I can quickly do is capture my dog's emotional framework, and I can start to reprogram it. And that means that my dog is able to tolerate those fear triggers. Now, for example, uh, a different one at home, um, what about a lawnmower? So something that I did with codes in the past is I got some pallets because, you know, they're free and you can get them just about anywhere. So I got some pallets, put them in the middle of the yard. I, I locked her into a down position. So she's lying down on the pallets while I use the lawnmower around her. So she had a long down. She stayed up there for a bunch of time. And I'm gradually getting closer and closer with the lawnmower. And then I'm getting further and further away. And I'm just doing my thing. And she's learning to cope with the lawnmower. Does she like it? No. 
No, she'd much rather be away from it, but she can't because she lives with me in a suburban block and we have a house. She could choose to go in there, but because she's so afraid of it, she's got to keep the lawnmower in her vision. But then that put her in a bit of dichotomy. I, I cannot afford for her to think that ever think that going for the lawnmower is a good idea because that's a pretty serious risk. So instead we teach her, look, if you can do this, you'll start to notice the lawnmower, it gets loud. There's things that are flying out of it. There's all sorts of stuff going on. You can tolerate it. That makes good things happen. So she learned pretty easily and pretty quickly that, do you know what? If I do this, when that is on, that still gives me my yes. That still leads me to some sort of an amazing consequence. And now she can sit around, the lawnmower comes out. Instead of peeking out, now she goes, do you know what? I don't need to feel panicked about this. I know how to control this particular situation. I'm going to get up and I'm going to make some distance. So now I can sit down, I can go out the front, I can mow the lawn, I can take it out the back, and Coda isn't on the grass anymore. She's decided for herself, do you know what? I just need to make some distance from that, and that's totally cool. I don't need to run away from it. It can't come and get me unless the old man's pushing it at me. It can't come and bite me because it's never done that before, and good things happen when it's around. So, hey presto, now we've learned how to habituate to something. So she learns, oh, do you know, this thing's out. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm not really overly fond of it. I'm just going to move away. Right. So think about if you're out at, um, you go to a cafe and next thing you know, you're just out there, uh, just out for a cruisy day and they put on some heavy metal. You're not really going to like that terribly much. So you just, you're going to get up and leave. You don't need to get frustrated about it. You don't need to throw your coffee around the, the cafe. You don't need to go nuts and call everybody everything. You just do your thing. And that's kind of what we're talking about today, is learning how to get self-control around things that happen in our life. So we talked about socialization, that's learning how to deal with living beings. Uh, and that is also habituation, learning how to deal with inanimate objects. They can be scary. They can also be severely attractive to us. Like if we look at... Um, uh, when we have little toddlers and babies, they usually have toys that have flashing lights. They move around erratically. They make funny sounds. And that, that's very attractive to a dog. So our dog's uh, a prey mood is starting to be awakened and they start to take an interest in it or they start to get conflicted in their head like, oh, I really want to have a go, but I better not because this belongs to the baby or I've been smashed for it before or I'm really scared of it. I don't know. I'll have all of these urges and I don't know how to deal with that. Is this okay? But if I sit there and I teach my dog how they're supposed to be living with these inanimate objects, then the lifestyle becomes predictable again. They understand, oh, I have this urge to go and smash that toy, but I don't need to. That's not what I'm called to do. It's 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 nothing to me. So then it becomes neutral, right? It doesn't have to predict anything in, in particular. It We just change the response away from a fear or a predatory response to something that's just neutral. Just keep doing your thing. Stay asleep if you want to stay asleep. Keep chewing your bone if you want to chew your bone. Or just you know, get on with life. Uh, we're going to start talking about um, doggy daycares in a, uh, in a minute. And we're going to talk about um, like socialization, how that pertains to small and large areas. Um, and we're also going to talk about dog parks in this next little section too. So again, if you've got a, a dog that has an issue, 
um, then do keep listening because we're, we're going to talk about things on, on how I can uh, change those particular responses, um, how I can do it at home and, and how I can get my dog to be less fearful by the time I get outside. So why is socialization so important? Um, there is an entire industry of dog trainers out there and uh, we are able to pay our mortgage because dogs are not well socialized. They don't walk well because they're afraid of other dogs or they're, they're going after dogs with intent. Um, they are fearful of a great number of things that are occurring within the lifestyle that they're living in. Um, there's all sorts of things where the owners either simply did not know how important that that first five months of a dog's life is, or you've gotten yourself a rescue, like you've adopted a dog, you've uh, bought an adult dog, and they've got some ticks that just don't float your boat for whatever reason. Sometimes it can be minor, sometimes it can be quite drastic. So we're going to delve into... Um, uh, the puppy phase now. By puppy phase, I mean up to six months. So whenever I'm dealing with puppies, the, the first the first kind of five months look fairly simplistic. All we're really looking at is um, how do I expose my dog to the things that are normal in my life? How do I um, teach my uh, puppy to be confident? And how do I maximize my dog's hunting abilities and, and how that is expressed in them as a an individual and as a breed. So let's have a look at just the, the exposure side of things because this is all part of the socialization framework. Now with a puppy, it's extremely important that during those formative first eight weeks that they're being consistently handled, that they're being exposed to different surfaces and different sounds, different feelings. They're being turned upside down for a little bit. They're being turned up topsy-turvy. Or they're being handled in such a manner that they can't necessarily control where they're going. And they're being subjected to some light stresses. Um, now, from memory, that is uh, from uh, Lackland Air Force, I think it is, from the Superdog um, program. Please do correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but it's the early neurological stimulation aspect of their puppy raising program where dogs were subjected to a little bit of warmth, a little bit of cold, uh, some handling, some handling in uncomfortable positions. So there's constantly stresses being applied mildly. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's age appropriate, but our dogs can't escape this particular stressor. They're simply subjected to it. And the outcome then is that as the puppy is developing and growing, they're becoming innately more confident because the threshold at which they start to peak out has been raised. Yeah, so if I have a dog and I don't, I just leave them in the whelping box and I don't do anything with them for eight weeks, by the time I take them out of that whelping box, they are going to be overwhelmed with the first breeze that comes their way. They've never felt one before. What does this feel like? And then there's a person. What do I do with a person? This is too, This is super scary. Essentially, I've got a really, really feral puppy on my hands. But if I expose them to a bunch of stresses strategically, and, and I've, I've done it mildly enough, then what happens is my dog is able to become far more resilient than they normally or uh, otherwise would. 
So exposure means exposure to um, things that would cause a fear reaction, things that would cause a joy reaction, things that would cause some frustration, things that would cause some consternation. There's a puzzle there. How do I solve this puzzle? So for example, I can put tarp, like just a tarpaulin down on the ground, and I can put some food on the tarpaulin. The puppies have got to go and get it. Right, they've got to go and get that food, but they've got to go over something uncomfortable, something new. It feels different. It sounds different. Um, everything about it, it smells different. It looks different. It's all novel. And our puppies have a, um, let's just refer to it as a blank slate. So if I have a blank slate and if I start to fill that, that slate up with a bunch of different things, then as my puppy grows, they have a, a, a much broader depth, a much deeper, richer pool of knowledge to be able to refer back to when something scary happens, when something enticing happens, when things are going sideways, they have the ability to become far more tolerant and resilient. And that, that is really, really important because a breeder only has a dog for seven to eight weeks and then they're going into a new home and then it's out of the breeder's control. A quality breeder does not want their dog back. They want their dog to go to a good home and that and that puppy stays in that home forever. So that's op optimal. That happens in most cases. But if we don't set them up to be able to do that in the first instance, then the owner must do that on their own. And then that becomes a little bit harder because we don't have that early exposure. So a good breeders will um, start their dogs off on uh, things like a raw diet, some crate training, some tether training, some um, handling of paws, of nails, of teeth, of ears, of all that sort of stuff. All these things that are, are going to be vital as your dog goes to a groomer's, as they go to the vets, as they get handled for competition, as they're doing all sorts of other things. Um, there's all sorts of things that you're going to want to do with your dog, but unless they're able to put up with some stresses as a puppy, then they're certainly not going to be able to put up with stresses as an adult. So if we continue to isolate our dogs, and especially at the puppy stage, we've wrapped them up in cotton wool, isolation is never the cure. It's management whilst we're getting to a, 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 an end result. But if I isolate my puppy, I'm only making the problem worse. So I must expose my puppy. I must be able to see a potential trigger and have the ability to pull that trigger so my, my puppy understands, hey, this is a pathway to get to something great. So perfect. Let's do that. Let's get our dog out and let's get them. Let's get them out early while they're in specific development stages where imprinting occurs. Where if I have a dog who is um, a few months old and they're starting to get into that fear period, we've talked about that in in the puppies um, episode. Once we get into that first fear period, I start to expose my dog to mild stresses of things that happen around the home, whether that's the coffee grinder, the blender the vacuum cleaner, um, the shaver, um, a massager, uh, electric uh, recliners, whatever those things are, uh, wheelchairs, prams, all sorts of devices and all sorts of people that are coming and going that they smell different, different colognes, different haircuts, different types of sunglasses, different colored shirts, different sizes, small, large, fast, slow, round, straight, all of those sorts of things, all of these different exposures to different things are important for a puppy because the more I can, I can expose them to 
strategically, I don't need to overwhelm them and say, hey, here's 100 dogs, that's the tick box. We've got we've got 50 breeds that are represented and we've got uh, male and female, so hey, everything's cool. Well, that's not the way it works. It's not a tick box thing. Right? So really what it comes down to is have a select number of people that you can trust and you are going to invite them home and they basically ignore your puppy for a little while. So your puppy realizes that, hey, not everybody is out there to treat me. Hey, not everybody is out there to give me pats. Instead, the good stuff comes from you, not from the other people. And when your puppy's calm, then, hey, now you can come and say hi. Uh, so that we, we're not teaching your dog to um, actively go up and jump. They're a puppy. Chances are they're going to do it. But we can teach them to not jump. We can teach them um, that they can wait patiently. You know, uh, same thing goes with dogs. A lot of puppy classes that are out there, okay, so we've done a little bit of training now. Unclip your dogs and let them go. So your dogs, your puppy's been squirming there for ages because they're somewhere between 8 and 14 weeks old. Of course they're going to be squirmy. But what they've been itching to do is go and investigate whatever's going on. By the time they get to the other pups, their minds are blown, they're overexcited, and they're not the individual anymore. They're just, they're representing their breed. So if I've got a, a bull breed, they start to bully. If I've got um, a Labrador, then they're going to start acting like a Labrador. They're going to start hunting and chasing and doing things like a Labrador. Um, same thing with the Spaniel. They're going to start using their nose, running around, being frenetic. But if I've got a far more strategic approach to my puppy class, where it we're using the other teams that are around you as a, as, as a distraction. Yes, they are there, but the good stuff comes from me on the other end of the lead. And soon enough, I get some neutrality towards those temptations that your puppy desperately wants to go and see. Is it easy? No, but it's fairly simple. My dog looks at a temptation, makes me say yes, my puppy's already been taught what yes means. They snap their head around to me and wham, here's some food. Snoked, my puppy is driven by food or toy or whatever that is, and they're getting it what it is that they want. But all they've done is have a moment of interaction with that temptation. Right? So uh, they're a puppy. Things happen at lightning pace. So I need to slow myself down in order to make that happen. And, that, and that's totally fine. And that's not something that I see the generic puppy class do. What we tend to do is we fawn over our pups. We're getting frustrated. We're getting excited. What do you think that's going to do to the puppy? It's going to get our puppy excited. And then they're not getting what they want because we're continually manhandling them and fawning over them. So that creates frustration. They're starting to use their teeth. And in the end, they get what they want. So it they learn to endure the nasty in order to get to the nice. And the risk of that is that I'm teaching my puppy to be impulsive, not patient. I'm teaching my puppy to blow me off and not be attentive. Yeah, so there's a lot of things that I've got to be careful about what I'm doing in a puppy class. Yeah, um, So the exposure side of things is well intended and the class structure is well intended. However, because of the way they're set up and usually, not all the time, but usually they're in close confines. So I'd rather have the puppies spread out over a larger area so that that distance makes the temptation less intense. Yeah? If you put a donut right in front of my nose, and I'm salivating already just thinking about it. But if you put that donut 
100 meters away from me, I'm not even going to notice. 50 meters away, I think I can see a donut. 20 meters away, oh, it's right there. I could go and grab that. I could get it, but it's too far away. I'm not going to worry about it. Put it within arm's length and oh, it's right there. What do you mean I have to wait? I want it. I want it now. And it's no different than with a puppy class where we put a puppy at enough distance away from their temptation where they can they can appreciate the presence of that living being, that puppy and that person, but they're not so tempted to, they're not sucked into that temptation. So I want to be able to set the distance up. That's the first thing. And if I don't have the distance available to me, then I'm flooding my dog. I'm exposing them to the full intensity of their temptation. And I, I really just have a, you know, a, a meatball to be able to entice them back to me. It's too much too soon. And through that, I am running the risk of degrading my relationship with the puppy and teaching my puppy that I just got to endure all of this stuff in order to get what I want because that's going to happen anyway. Right? So exposure really is about getting out into the real world and teaching my dog that these things are okay. Right? So for example, out of my office, I've just trimmed a, a tree down in my front yard and there's a whole heap of branches floating around, right? There's a, there's a bunch of like foliage, thick branches, thin branches. If I had a pup, I'd have that pup in there sniffing for food. I'd be shaking the branches. I'd be doing all sorts of stuff that is simulating movement, but it's a mild stressor to my puppy. And if my puppy starts to freak out about it, then I'll turn that pressure off, wait for my puppy to calm down, and then we'll re-go back into it. Yeah, so it's like you've fallen off the bike, now get back on. But we're doing it in, a, in a, a, a such a manner, it is age appropriate and it is appropriate to that individual's capacity. Right? And through that, I can start to get my dog exposed to a variety of different things. And the, the same thing goes with people. So if I have uh, a new pup, I'm going to have someone that I know and trust come around and, hey, can you just sit there for me? Sure, I'm going to get my pup out. Can you do your best not to look at the pup, not touch the pup? And even if they jump on you, just ignore it. I'll take care of it. And if I have to, here's a little trick. Get them to wear sunnies, like thick, like really dark tinted sunnies. Because that way they can look at your pup, but the pup can't tell that they're being looked at. So that's a way that you can uh, kind of <laughs> tick boxes on both ends of the scale. But then I can start to control how my puppy interacts with other people. Oh, there's someone there. Mind explosion. They're aroused by it. They're overexcited about it. And then they're heading into distress. And if I keep teaching my puppy that, hey, someone's here, go and jump all over them. What do you think is going to happen in six to eight months? I'll have a large adolescent dog that is going to be jumping up at people. And in 12 months, I'll be rehoming that dog because... Uh, broke Arnie Flo's, Flo's nose across her face because she came in and she just happened to be there and my dog has jumped up and smashed her in the face. It's well intended. There's no malice behind that. But the risk outweighs the action. Right? Just don't do it. I need you to be neutral. I need you to be calm when someone comes in. That way you can go up and say hi. So we're teaching our dogs how to be in relationship with those around them. And once that person, uh, that, that person's temptation 
has relaxed a little, the next person can come in. And then we just continually go through that process. And you can do that in a bunch. You can do that with your own family. You can do that when people come around because they all want to see the puppy. You say, look, I get it. I totally get it. You can have playtime later. But right now, I just want I want them to know that things are calm around you. That's an important lesson to learn. Otherwise, everyone is going to be spoiling your puppy rotten. And you know what? That's right in the correct timing. There's opportunities for that to occur but not the greeting phase, yeah? So there's a couple of things for exposure there, but that socialization, it doesn't finish at home. It also goes out into the public. Once you've been able to establish a culture of good social practices inside your home, you, you should also be taking it outside the home. Now, normal veterinary advice would be um, don't expose your dog to the outside world until their vaccinations are complete. So, I mean, that's obviously from a veterinary's, uh, uh, that's from their perspective, and I totally understand where they're coming from. Um, doctors are very right-brained, they're very analytical, Things need to be measurable, they need to be repeatable, um, and vaccines are measurable and they're constant, right? So the mother's antibodies that are passed onto the pup that you've brought home, that's not repeatable and it's not measurable, right? So it's not calibrated. So why is that important? Because there's now fluctuation. The state of the dam's health, the state of uh, her antibodies, the state of her physiology, her breeding, all of these sorts of things, the diet that they've been given, the exposure that they've been given, the stresses that they've been put under, that's all gonna have an effect on the overall health of your puppy. So that means then that the natural God-given immunities that they have developed prior to you picking them up are all over the place. Now, there is a very broad bandwidth of what they are capable of being subjected to. So let's look at things from a behavioral perspective, not a vet one. From a behavioral perspective, what we tend to see is the amount of dogs that are in pounds, the amount of dogs that are in rescues, the amount of dogs that are caught in revolving door situations where they go from one home to the next and then end up on um, at the vet surgeons and, and they're getting euthanized or they're being dumped or they're being drowned or shot or whatever. I mean, these things happen. It's legitimate. This isn't fantasy. This is fact. If dogs were exposed in their, in their critical period of development, which is the first 16 weeks, if they were exposed and socialized and habituated to the lifestyle that they're supposed to be living in, you, you would see a drastic reduction in dogs that get dumped at the pound, in dogs that are admitted to rescue. And, and certainly behavioral euthanasia would plummet a great deal as well. Now, again, that, that is easily discernible when we have a look at the population that is in the pounds, the amount of kill shelters and no kill shelters we have, the amount of rescues we have, that is a problem that is only growing and it's not to do with breeding practices as much as some people might like to believe. It's, it's not to do with designer dogs, it's not to do uh, with purpose-bred dogs, it's to do with us as a people and how we raise our puppies. 
if we were to be able to appreciate some of the things that we were able to uh, overcome in the 70s and 80s through um, far more, um, shall we say, disciplinarian raising, these days were far more permissive and to each culture its own, whatever, that, that's a irrespective. But if we can teach our dogs to be exposed to things at an early age, then our dog has a rich library upon which later on in life, when they get scared, they can go, oh, that red bus that scared pants off me. It's almost like that blue mini bus that I saw ages ago that would come up and down my street all the time and it didn't bother me. Whew, I've got some, I've got some sort of a reference to go off. Yeah. Or that lawnmower. I've never seen that lawnmower before. It's peeking me out, but you know, because it's a petrol one and we've only had an electric one before, which smells different. It sounds different. It works different, but you're doing the same thing. So maybe I don't need to be so worried about it. So if we, we have a bunch of experiences, then we have a richer tapestry, which we can look at when we are starting to peak out. And that's really important. Now, a general rule of thumb is, um, if I'm taking my dog out for a walk, I'm going to be taking him out for no more than five minutes per month of age that my puppy is old. So if I've got a 12-week-old puppy, that's 4, 8, 12, that's now three lots of five minutes, that means I can walk out my door for seven and a half minutes, and then I can walk back in for seven and a half minutes. Or I can go for a seven-minute walk in the morning and a seven-minute walk in the evening. That walking time, I must reduce that for physiological reasons. Um, I don't want to risk early, um, early arthritis. I don't want to overexpose my puppy. And I don't want to take risks that are simply unnecessary. And if I reduce the amount of time I'm exposing my, my puppy for, then I'm able to reduce the magnitude of overwhelm. I'm able to reduce the uh, probability of something bad happening. Yeah. So I time it. I time it for quiet times. I make sure that I'm taking my dog into situations where the dog population is at a minimum. I'm exposing my dog to situations where the area is as clean as possible. So um, I don't want to go into areas that are known to be parvo centers. I don't want to take my dog into areas where there are loads and loads of dogs because uh, hygiene tends to dip. My puppy is susceptible. They're not a full, they don't have the full antibodies in their system. So I don't, I've got to be smart about what I'm doing. If I just go to the dog park that stinks of dog poo, then it's a ticking time bomb. Yeah, stuff's going to happen. I'm exposing my dog to the full brunt of bad stuff. Then I've got to expect they're going to get sick. But if I'm smart about it, I'm walking them on the road, I'm walking them uh, around cafes and things where there might be a dog or two, but they're not going to drink out of the water bowl that is provided. I'm going to have my own water with me. Yeah, uh, They only get the food that comes out of my pocket. They only get food that comes from me. Other people can't just come up and pet my dog. Other dogs simply can't come up and sniff my pup. You know, those sorts of things. If I am able to take care of that, then stoked. But all of this is relatively artificial. I can teach my dog how to deal with life through socialization and habituation, right? So again, um, that's 
learning how to deal with inanimate objects and learning how to deal with living beings. But what happens when my dog is independent of me? I want to take my dog to a dog park. I want to take my dog to the dog beach. I want to take my dog out camping. I want to take my dog out places. Well, what happens when I'm not there? If I'm not there, then my dog must have the ability to be able to deal with other dogs as a dog. I can't teach that. That it is that's an innate thing. I can teach when it's too exciting. I can teach when things are going sideways and I can I can deal with those, but I can't teach my dog, hey, sniff bums before ramming face. I can I can't teach my dog to lift their paw onto the other one to say, hey, chill out. There's communication that is happening constantly. The flick of an eyelid, the, the moving of the nose, the tilt of the ears, super subtle things, play bows, stiffness. The all, there's a whole gamut of communication, which is physical, that I, I will never teach a dog. They need to learn that from another dog. Where can I get that done? A lot of people will go, yeah, let's have a puppy play date and we'll just get it all done. And then my dogs are just running around and there's no refereeing that is happening. There's no, there's no capacity to go, oh, do you think they're okay that they're getting mauled by two dogs at the moment? Do you think they like that? And then I start to wonder why my dog is going sideways or why my dog is becoming racist towards, I don't know, um, brown poodles because that brown poodle smashed my dog when they were uh, 10 weeks old and now my dog has an indelible mark in their brain. Brown poodles are the boogeyman. So they try to push them away all the time. A service that I think, um, whilst it is popular, I think that it isn't as popular as it could and should be and that is daycare for dogs. Um, it has a bit of a funky name. I don't really like the name daycare. I think that um, we call them if we call them learning centers, I think people would take them a bit more seriously. Um, and I would encourage you to look at a daycare like a learning center, because ultimately that is what it is. Now, when we're looking at daycare, we want to have a look at a few things. Ultimately, daycare is a place where dogs go to be a dog. It's where they go to explode, where they get to go and have fun. They get to run at 100 miles an hour. They get to tussle. They get to wrestle. They get to um, play the way dogs play. They get to do all sorts of things. They get to be competitive. They get to be collaborative. They get to be cooperative with other dogs as dogs. Now, that is terribly difficult for us in 2021 to come to terms with because, hey, I just give, I give everything that my puppy needs. Why do they need anything else? Because they're a puppy and they're not a person. And that's something that we tend to overlook a great deal. If we can treat our puppy like a puppy and, and a, you've brought a puppy home, so give them the ability to grow to be a dog. They will never grow to be a person. So if I can throw them into daycare, then so much the better. Now they're getting socialization taught to them, not just by you, but also by a stable pack of adult dogs, adolescent dogs and pups. So they're getting taught to learn to deal with old dogs, young dogs, fast, fast dogs, slow dogs, brawlers, runners, anxious dogs, mildly aggressive dogs when it comes to certain things. There's some things that you don't do to that specific dog. That dog, for example, does not like it when you touch their ears. They're going to tell you no on certain terms. Don't do that again, which is not dissimilar to when your puppy was 
uh, three to five weeks old and they're still smashing the the teat of the dam and the dam turns around and snarls and snaps it's no different but it looks very savage right it's it can be uncomfortable for us to watch sometimes but it is a completely normal chain of communication for our dogs now that being said let's underpin that with there must be good refereeing in the dog daycare i have worked at places where we had 100 to 120 dogs on any given day, they'd be turned out into a bunch of yards, and then that would be it. They wouldn't see another person. And that's not a good place. That's a bad place. That's not the way to run a daycare business. There must be supervision by a human at all times. If that isn't the case, then dogs learn that there are windows of opportunities where I can get my own back, where I can play in a manner that is uninhibited, where I can dig out of this area, I can jump out of this area, I can rip the fence apart. Dogs will be opportunistic in weird and wonderful ways, and the more excited they get, the less of the individual they are. Yeah, So they become... Um, they become less the puppy that and dog that you know and love, and they become more their breeding. So they'll start to try and rip into things, whether that's furniture, whether that's clothing, whether that's another dog, whether that's um, the fencing, whatever that is. But if we have good refereeing, then that means that the referee is able to keep the game of daycare, that learning center, we're able to keep that whole team going at a certain pace, at a certain tempo, at a certain speed limit. So if we go, do you know what? We've got old dogs in here and we've got some mildly anxious pups. So the speed limit is gonna be 40 for the day. So, okay, things need to be chill. Not a problem. If things are chill, then the old dogs have, they have their comfort. Now, the anxious pups are able to learn to predict more things. The older dogs aren't doing terribly much anymore. They're old and they're slow. The anxious pups, they don't need frenetic activity around them, that's gonna feed into the anxiety. So now you have this nice group dynamic and you have a referee there who is able to take care of those dogs and say, do you know what, we're keeping this pace set nice and low so that the pups can get over their anxiety. They learn to predict that, oh, there's things around me, but oh, I'm starting to understand that now. This is actual real life. I didn't know it was like that. I was too sheltered for the first 16 weeks. Now I'm starting to get it. And then that puppy can graduate away from that very chilled out team. They can go into another group and things are, uh, they're going faster. Now we're moving into a group that's doing 60, then 80, 250, whatever that is. And they kind of graduate into less and less inhibited or, or, or faster and faster action. And that's important for some pups and certainly important for older dogs. They don't need to be putting up with all of that sort of stuff. So the group needs to be managed. And for that, you need to have a referee. What we don't need is the water boy to come out with oranges and all the fluff and love and, oh, is everything okay? I'm just going to pick this puppy up and play and play and pamper, pamper, pamper. And then on to the next one. And, oh, this is amazing. Oh, and it's undermining exactly what they're there for. You're teaching... Um, you're teaching dependence, you're teaching uh, a, an over-attention onto people. But the issue then is, if the staff are continually going around and picking up the puppies and, and just playing with that one dog and focusing on that one thing, they're not refereeing. 
Now, I've had this happen to me before where I've been in a situation where I've been taking care of a yard of dogs and there is one particular dog who has uh, has misconstrued that there's another white fluffy dog there and this other, um, the larger dog decided, oh, that looks very, very tasty. That dog is moving around like a rabbit. It looks like a rabbit. It doesn't smell like one, but it looks like one and I'm just, I'm on. And I had to be over that situation. I had to referee that situation all day. There, in that instance, there wasn't an, a, a capacity to isolate the two from each other. They were in a large yard, job done. So what did the big dog do? The big dog realized that every time he looked sideways at, at his intended prey victim, that I was all over it like white on rice. I wasn't going to allow that to happen. So he simply then realized, okay, I can't do it. Fine, I won't do it until the criteria have changed. And they did. Eventually, little flight Wuffy Bunny um, was behind me and so was the big dog. Guess what happened? As soon as there was an opportunity, the big dog started to prey on the little dog. So I had to come in and interject. Because if because I can referee that situation, I can start to go, oh, why is everything suddenly quiet? That's not good. Turn around, I can start to see something unfold because you have to be situationally aware of what's happening around you at any given time. It's like being in a room of 10 two-year-olds and they're all packing chainsaws. There's your dog's daycare sitting right there. Uh, Except that your two-year-olds are able to travel at 40 kilometers an hour and they can go from zero to hero in half a second and things can go sideways very quickly. So you have to be able to referee that. It's no different to watching the footy on a Friday night. Things can get out of hand very quickly and the main reason why they don't is because there's referees in the game to make sure that the game is being played to the utmost reputation of the game. Perfect, let's do that. But we can't do that if the referee is permissive and focusing on the cutesy aspect. I have to be situationally aware. Now, along with that, we have the ratios. There's a staffing ratio that should be met whenever it's possible. And in an ideal world, your staff ratio will be one referee for 10 dogs in that yard. That's, That's a pretty good number. Uh, that's uh, as rule of thumb. Yeah, you can certainly uh, you can stretch that ratio out depending on the types of dogs you got. However, what we have to think of is everything is running fine until it isn't, and when things aren't running fine, look, this can be a complete mishap. Dogs are running, they turn, they slip, they break something. Things can happen, right? It, it's life. But when that dog is lying on the ground screaming, what are the other nine dogs going to do? I'll tell you exactly what they're going to do. They're going to stop being the individual that you know and love, and they're going to start devolving into the dog that sets you on edge. Their eyes change. Their demeanor changes. They're like sharks smelling blood in the water. If there is a victim on the ground, they suddenly turn into predators, and bang, we're on. And now I have to keep that one injured dog safe from the nine dogs around me. It is very hard to do that when your staff ratios are 1 to 40 dogs because things are gonna go sideways. There's gonna be competition over the victim. There's gonna be all sorts of things coming at you from all sorts of different angles. So the ratios are there for safety, not so much security. Those are two different things we can talk about in in a different episode. So we've, we've kind of talked about ratios. I can push that ratio out to probably one to 15, 
But at about that 15 mark, from my experience, that's when things start to get dicey. It is hard to keep track of 15 dogs in one yard at any one point in time because things can happen in a corner of a yard that aren't so cool. And I don't necessarily realize that's going on if I've got two or three dogs that are having a bit of a tiff over here or I'm trying to do some enrichment activities over over here and something bad is happening behind me. A dog is trying to escape out of the yard or a dog is having a hard time or a dog is trapped in a piece of equipment and I can't help them because I'm doing some enriching activities somewhere else or I'm taking photos for um, clients so that you can you guys can share in, in your dog's day. At around that 15, for me, that's a critical threshold. Some people will probably be able to get away with more, but I find that 1 to 15, you're, kind of, you're surfing the edge of a human capacity there. Yeah? Um, so those are, those are things to look at when you're choosing a daycare. Is what are the staff ratios and why are they like that? So let's also have a look at, in uh, this next little section, let's look at dog daycare makeup. Now we have indoor and we have outdoor daycare facilities and we have large field and we have small field facilities and they they mix up in between each other and then obviously you have the hybrids that um, are, are fortunate enough that they have an indoor and an outdoor facility for daycare operation. Uh, so the pros of an indoor facility are quite simple, they can run 365 days a year completely independent of weather. Wonderful. A negative aspect is that you are now more or less on some sort of an artificial surface um, and the environment tends to be smaller, tends to be. There are large facilities that have warehouses, that they've got big yards and enriching areas, that sort of stuff. Totally cool, but if I'm looking at things from on an average perspective, um, then your average indoor daycare is going to be in, in an industrial estate. It's going to be a single or, or a double um uh, industrial warehouse or, or bay and the areas aren't going to be terribly large so that doesn't necessarily fit with my fast moving breeds like it, it doesn't necessarily fit with um, the herding breeds like kelpies coolies border collies things like that it doesn't allow them to go from zero to hero in a heartbeat and maintain that speed uh, same thing goes for like your sight hounds or, or any hound that they can't run and explode and get that stuff out of their system so indoor areas, they cater very well to uh, small and smallish medium breeds. It caters very well to uh, your giant breeds. It also caters quite well to your brawler type of dogs. So your bully breeds, the dogs that like to wrestle more than run and chase. Um, so this is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking stereotypes here. These are things to look at and how it fits into your lifestyle and your dog's lifestyle is, is com may be completely different. But these are just some takeaways to have a look at. Um, so the, the big negative aspect is, um, in my opinion, with an indoor facility is they are expensive to keep quiet. By that I mean like they usually have some sort of a tin roof, they have brick walls and the barks and the sounds, they all echo off of each other um, and that keeps artificially then, it keeps the excitement level unnaturally high because the sound of the echoes, the excessive noise, um, it, it creates an agitation that would otherwise not be there and that heightens, um, it keeps the arousal high and that keeps the excitement going. With an outdoor facility, so we're talking exclusively at this stage, an outdoor facility, um, the biggest 
con of an outdoor facility is do you know what it rains it snows it's cold it's hot you're really at the whim of the weather so if you have the type of dog that is extremely difficult to groom or um, you don't like your dog getting dirty then an outdoor facility may well not be what you're looking for because the biggest pro of an outdoor facility is that your dog is able to get out in the wet the dry the cold the hot they can get into mud they can go swimming in dams they can do all this sort of stuff now they each have their purpose in my opinion and they have both have have their pros and cons but i've got to look at the the individual dog right so an outdoor facility can be large it can be small um if I can find a large field outdoor daycare, so much the better. And that particularly suits my running type of dog. So my herding dogs, my hounds, um, the the real big movers, like even side hounds, like your greyhounds, your afghans, those sorts of things. Those dogs that they want to get up some speed and they need to stretch their body out and run and they don't need to turn all the time. Um, those sorts of things are intense for a dog it allows them to explode and that's really really important that they have the opportunity to explode in a positive way they can maximize their fun and then they come home to you and they're physically depleted and they're mentally depleted these are great things so uh, i have to have a look at indoor daycare um, my dog's going to come back pretty clean most of the time um, an outdoor daycare when it's raining my dog's coming home and they're going to at least be damp is that a drama to me? So what are the, from a health aspect, if in 2021, we like to keep things clinically clean and we like to not get ourselves dirty. The problem with that is that we then don't take on all of this dirt. So our antibodies don't have anything to do. We then succumb to colds. We then don't play in dirt. So we don't get it under our fingernails. It's not in our mouths. It's not in our, on our skin we become far more susceptible to all manner of stuff that happens because we're not playing in it. We're not living in the real world. We're living in a concrete jungle. So especially for my city dog, if I can get some outdoor time for my dog, totally stoked. I'm going to I'm gonna take advantage of that. Um, if I can have a large field area in my daycare, I'm definitely going to have one because that allows... Uh, it allows me to cater for a bunch of dogs in one field. However, now my dog, if they've had enough, they can go and take themselves under a tree. They can go and hide in a corner for a little while until they're over whatever it is they need to get over, and then they can come back in and join them, join the rest of the group. If my dog's a little bit tired, they can take themselves away, and they can have a rest time underneath some equipment. And then when they're awake again, out they come, and they're reveling back in the activities. In a small environment, in a small field and in particular in a small indoor setting where the noise levels are unnaturally high that tends to be harder to maintain my dog doesn't have the ability to withdraw themselves away so let's just say for example they've sprained something right they've been rolling with another dog um, they've copped a good bashing they've given one back they've had a great time they're totally stoked but they're a little bit tired they're a little bit sore they just want to move away and be away from other dogs for a little while but they can't and now we get them, our dogs into a situation where they become more agitated, more aggravated, and then they start to get antsy and they're starting to lash out at other dogs as the day goes on. And next thing you know, your dog's being fired because 
the situation that dog has been put in simply wasn't suitable. They needed that time away. Right? So it, it it's an important thing that a daycare has enriching times, also has calm times. So that it, it's okay for my dog to have some training. It's okay for my dog to have some explosion time. It's okay for my dog to have some enrichment. But it's, it must also be mandated that when does my dog get some quiet time where they can chill out and relax? And the outcome of bringing my dog or taking my dog to daycare is when I come and pick my dog up, my dog should be calm. They don't need to be so exhausted that they sleep for the next two days. What I would much prefer to have happen is that my dog is calm for the next three days. Because what happens then is I know that my dog's needs are being met so that they're not going sideways at home. But if my dog does nothing but sleep for the three days and I go, oh, maybe this is a bit too much. Maybe it's too frenetic. Or maybe I'm not doing enough to be able to maximize the use of that daycare. Maybe I'm not keeping my dog fit enough during the day until I take them to daycare. Then they get everything they need. My dog goes, dude, I've got like six, eight or nine hours here. I've got to get everything I can. They smash themselves into deterioration and then they're stuffed. And by the time my dog's two years old, they're a walking wreck because I haven't been able to, once I've taken them to daycare, I haven't taken them for a walk. I haven't done anything with them. I haven't done any enriching activities at home. So just because I'm taking a dog to daycare, great for socialization. My dog learns how to be a dog, learns how to interact with other dogs that are friendly, not so friendly. They learn how to deal with dogs that are sick and healthy, old and young, large and small, black and white, furry, unfurry, all of these sorts of things. They learn how to deal with dogs in a way that is far more dog-centric. So if you have a dog, I would urge you to go look for a daycare around you and make sure you get into one that is suitable and, and appropriate for your puppy. Rock and roll, that wraps up our episode around socialization and daycare. Uh, if you have any questions, please do reach out. You can uh, join us over at Barefoot Paws Discussion Group on Facebook. You can also get in contact with me through my email at barefootpaws at mail.com. Or you can come and have a look at my website at barefootpaws.com.au. If you've got any questions, if you've got um, any particular issues, it doesn't really matter where you are. It's 2021. It's a digital age. Everyone is a phone call away. Get in contact. Let me know. I would love to see you in the discussion group. And um, yeah, we'll see you around.